1: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit, Good King Wenceslas, one of the most famous Christmas songs out there. But few of us know the true story behind the man that was Wenceslas. Not in fact a king, but a duke, a duke of Bohemia. He may have been made famous by the Christmas Carol, but in fact he's a pivotal figure in medieval European history who deserves to be remembered beyond that popular song. I learned in this podcast that he's almost an Arthurian figure in the Czech Republic today, the first modern Christian Czech ruler. He really forged what would become the kingdom of Bohemia and locked it into the European network of states that was developing at the time. On this podcast, I'm very pleased to say we've got one of my favourite contributors, Dr. Eleanor Yarniger. She is responsible for some of the biggest shows on History Hit TV. She's an academic. She's a historian who teaches in London. And she is obsessed with Bohemia. Rightly so, because it's fascinating. She's always on hand to remind us that the medieval world stretched far beyond the White Cliffs of Dover, with its marvellous castle atop them. Now, the really exciting news is that Eleanor is joining us at History Hit as Matt Lewis's new co-host on Gone Medieval, our smash-hit medieval history podcast. Go and subscribe if you're not already. But in the meantime, let's hear about the man who made Czechia, Wenceslas. Enjoy. Enjoy.
1: T-minus 10 Atomic bomb dropped 10. on Hiroshima God, God save the king. No black-white unity Till there is Bye. first some black unity Never to go to war with one another again And liftoff And the shuttle has cleared the tower
2: And thanks so much for coming on the pod A delight to be here as always Thanks Dan
0: You know what, you've often, in the past I've managed to restrain you I've managed to restrain you <laughs> in the past. But you've often tried to talk about Bohemia as much as possible Mm. and how like England was this little medieval backwater and all the action, all the action was in Central Europe and Bohemia. So on this episode, I'm going to just give in. It's inevitable. But like, before we get onto Wenceslas, the man himself, like, talk to me about this place, like the Duchy of Bohemia. Where does it start? What is it? And is it quite as amazing as you say it is?
2: Okay, so first of all, obviously, it's as amazing as I say it is. And it's probably even more amazing than that. And I'm not doing it justice. (laughs) So let's just get that out of the way, right? But um, Bohemia is, in terms of the modern day uh, state, it's one of two states that are in the Czech Republic. So you got Bohemia and you got Moravia. Um, And so Bohemia is kind of the Western bit that is touching up alongside of what is now Germany. And Moravia is the Eastern bit that is a little bit more on Austria and like Slovakia side, right? And when Bohemia kind of comes into existence as a kingdom and a polity, there's just been this very exciting time in Central Europe where there's been the empire of greater Moravia, which was huge and contiguously, like as a whole, it's like from Croatia and everything all the way up to around about Bohemia. They're doing like really interesting things and they're Christianizing everybody. Right. So it's the Moravians are really, really involved in being like "Mm, here. It's the Middle Ages. We're about to Christian the join up. Right. Like no more pagans around here. We're all Christians now. And they bring up uh, St. Cyril and Methodius, who are responsible for bringing Christianity in the Slavonic right. They invent the Slavonic alphabet, all of these things. Right. And so uh, Bohemians are like, this is all cool. I would like to be fancy and also be a Christian because that's very much the fashionable thing. Right. But what the Bohemians have that the Moravians don't have is silver mines. And so the greater uh, Moravian empire, it collapses and the Bohemians are like, hmm, well, we're Christian now, just about. And also we are incredibly rich. And so this becomes their kind of reason for being is that they are big silver suppliers to the rest of Europe. So the German speakers are constantly sort of eyeing this and they're like, hmm. Wouldn't mind some of that, right? Like wouldn't wouldn't mind a silver miner too. And now that they're kind of Christianized, it's sort of like, oh well, maybe we're going to get over there. And then there becomes this big project, like right around the time when Saint Wenceslas is uh, doing his thing of getting them into the Holy Roman Empire, which is kind of like new and it's the new and done thing. And so they eventually get amalgamated into it, and they become kind of the treasure chest of the Holy Roman Empire. So when people say Holy Roman Empire, they usually go, oh, that means Germans, doesn't it? No, no, sure, there's a lot of German speakers, but there's Italians, there's French people, and there is very crucially Bohemians. And they're so important that they're one of the seven electors who gets to say who's going to be the new Holy Roman Emperor, things like this. So they have a lot of money, and they're controlling a lot of the shots. And Prague is this incredibly important place for trade and culture all throughout the Middle Ages because, I mean, listen, it comes down to money, baby, and they had it. So what are you going to do about that, right?
0: <laughs> and the expression bohemian, which just means just people chilling, having, living their best lives, deep, deep, deep crushed velvet I'm thinking, you know, chaise lounge, mm-hmm. I'm thinking talking about ideas, smoking things, having a good time. Is that a 19th century thing or is that a medieval thing?
2: Yeah, interestingly, it's a 19th century thing and specifically it comes from the Roma diaspora out of what was then Czechoslovakia. So there's a lot of Roma people who were living in the Czech lands and they go over to France. Uh, I don't know, for whatever they felt like it, you know, who's going to stop them, right? And everyone was like, oh, these people are bohemian, right? (laughs) Because they're all speaking Czech. Many of the things that when we say, oh, it's a bohemian lifestyle, it's actually about like Romany culture and like Roma culture and not really particularly quote unquote Czech. Although obviously there's a a thriving Roma population within the Czech Republic as well.
0: All right. Well, let's talk about the very bohemian man, Wenceslas himself. He's born into an interesting dynasty. I love the, uh, how do I pronounce this dynasty?
2: Pshami slid. <laughs> so uh, it's a sound that we have in check that other people don't have R with the ha check. It's think about it like the Z in Azure, but you roll your tongue. So it's pshai.
0: I'm going to let you continue to say that while I uh, <laughs> admire it. Just let's assume going forward, I can say I'm just choosing not to.
2: If you say slid, I'm happy. That's all. Okay. I have say, so. But it, I
0: love the star. I love this like legendary founder of this dynasty. Tell me about him.
2: Okay, yeah, so this is allegedly started as a dynasty by a plowman called Przemyslil. And, you know, he's a normal guy. He's a regular farmer guy, uh, So which shows you that the Psemislids, like, they're salt of the art. They're, like, good Czech people. But he runs into a mythical fairy named Libuja, who instantly falls in love with him, and they establish the Psemislid dynasty. And this is a really common thing, especially in the earlier medieval period, when dynasties want to establish why it is that they're allowed to be king you know, sort of like justifying their rule. It's very, very common for them to say that they have some kind of mythical character somewhere in their background. So, for example, the Merovingians over in France say that they're descended from a sea monster. People all the time will be like, oh, we're descended from Aeneas or, you know, like people in the kind of Trojan War stories. But uh, the Pshimmy Slids, they've got the fairy Labougie and a plowman. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's what starts their dynasty out. And it's why they are allowed to rule Bohemia.
0: Well, and let's not forget our own uh, glorious late queen, and her son, I guess, claimed descent from Woden. Yes. So that's not super unusual. Now, tell me then about this dynasty. They're pretty successful, right? I mean, they rule for centuries.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when you think about medieval Bohemia, it is oftentimes the story of the Temeslids, um in particular. So, you know, they kind of are ruling from the early medieval period, like even before they Christianized, really, all the way up to the 14th century. So the first of the Přemyslid Dukes that we really have a handle on is from 867, and that's the I. And it lasts all the way up into the 14th century when you switch over to the Luxembourg's and uh, King Charles IV, who's like my guy. He's the one that everything in Prague is named after. If it says Charles, it's about him. Right. Okay.
0: So before Charles comes on the scene, your guy, let's talk about um, Wenceslas. There's a, there are a few of them. Why do we remember one of them in particular?
2: When we say Venceslaus, like a lot of the time, you if you're thinking about the Christmas Carol, this is the guy that you're thinking of. And you oftentimes say, just say Venceslaus so that it differentiates him from all of the others, because it's a very popular name as a result of him. And he is a Duke of Bohemia. He was born around about 907. And he is a martyr and a saint. And he's kind of responsible for creating this idea in the heads of Bohemians about what it means to be a Bohemian, right? So he is born Christian, but it was during the process of Christianization in Bohemia more generally. So he's got a Christian grandmother, Ludmilla, which is also my grandmother's name. So shout out, very good name for a grandmother. Uh, but um, she's Christianized, and his mom kind of like nominally converts when she marries his father. His father is called Wratislaus, another great name, and his mom is called Drahomira. So they get married. And his dad kind of dies quite young while well, Venceslaus is kind of like getting ready to be king and everything. So uh, his mother is kind of considered too pagan to be the regent. So instead, it's Ludmilla, his grandmother, who is regent while Charles is still in his minority. And this is where things start to go wrong. <laughs> because the legend is that Drahomira, his mom, really resents the amount of power and control that Ludmilla has over Venceslaus. So she sends a bunch of knights to murder her. And Ludmilla is strangled uh, on the orders of his mom, right? Uh, and so that's a mother in law situation. Yeah, right? you know, in many ways, Drahomira lives the dream. Uh, you know, <laughs> and uh you know, this is a joke. Please do not murder your mother-in-law. But uh it is this kind of thing where she says, Okay, well, in which case I'm going to like get the power and I'll be the power behind the throne. And uh she gets rid of Ludmilla.
0: And is this personal? Is it about power or is it also about this confusion about Christianity, the Christianizing. Does the mother want to retain the pagan ways?
2: I think that the answer to this is yes. So it's definitely about power. You know, she wants her own power, but part of why she sees herself ostracized and sees herself as not having as much power as she wants is because of this Christianization thing. And it's very much a kind of like play for what does it mean to be checked? Because Jerogamira's um, family is an old Czech family as well. She's oftentimes seen as being more linked to like the tribalness of the area. So she's from the um, Haveli tribe in the area. And so people are kind of like, oh, well, this is a story about really kind of being held back to old ways um, and tribalness and, you know, quote, unquote, paganness, as opposed to becoming a real kingdom or dukedom and having a lot of high level kind of interactions with the rest of Europe and what is it that we're going to be. So Drahomira kind of is representative of this older school of being and Ludmilla was kind of like no 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 we're we're fancying up around the joint. We're like all the kind of like post-roman christian states.
0: And I I I wish there was some sort of modern relevance <laughs> and resonance to the idea of uh, you know bitter fights within a polity around <laughs> identity, around engagement with the world around them versus kind of closing yourself off. Oh yeah. Mm. Kind
2: of
0: celebrating quote unquote traditional values. Like, I mean, it it is fascinating, right? And so there's an idea here is there that Christianity, it's foreign. It's a, check enough. Is that right?
2: Yeah, that's right. So, you know, and this idea that we should be holding to kind of like a superstructure of a state and having like a real, they're dukes at the time, but, you know, they kind of think of themselves as kings. But, you know, having one dynasty that sort of controls this as opposed to kind of like ongoing tribal renegotiations of who controls what land, that's a huge thing. It's a big deal to change religions. It is fundamentally, you know, we think about this as a kind of done deal now. But for the people who are doing it at the time, if you come in and say, no i'm sorry you've got to believe in a whole new religion in order to rule this country obviously that's going to be hard for some people
0: yeah and also we come to it with a bit of a post religious cynicism or well, many of us and and actually they believe this stuff right this is really important this is about everlasting life or not or hell or damnation like this is pretty pretty serious i always find it fascinating like what's in it why is christianity so popular you know is it just the power of the example of the saints of martyrs of missionaries of and the uh The engagement with the stories of the Bible? Or is it like there are actually practical advantages to being Christian, right? You can import knowledge. Like you get people coming and tell you how to extract more tax from your subjects. Or is that what are the practical reasons for embracing Christianity?
2: Yes, that's absolutely the case. Setting aside the fact that there is obviously a great deal of genuine religious feeling about this, which is certainly true. But it's also very representative, especially in the medieval period, to people about Romanness. And so you still have – we've got to keep in mind that the Eastern Roman Empire, which uh, we sometimes call Byzantium now, is still going great guns. Like, you know, they're over there having a great time wearing togas and watching chariot races right now. Nothing has really changed for them. And indeed for the Czechs, you know, this is their first kind of experience of Christianity. It's emissaries that have been sent out from Byzantium to say, hey, do you want to run a really well-regulated state? Check out how much taxation revenue we're bringing in. We have so much money that we give all of our subjects grain just to live in cities because we can afford to do that. And that's looking really good from the standpoint of people over in Western Europe, right? And also in terms of the kind of like more Western spheres of influence, because Bohemia is right on the kind of middle of this. It can kind of go either way if it's going to go a little bit more uh Orthodox Eastern Roman Empire or if it's going to be a little bit more towards the Western things. And over in the West of Europe, there's this kind of real scrapping for like, oh, who's going to be the new Rome? Who's the new Rome? Right. And that's really what's kind of going on around the time of Enschoslaus is the Ottonians are establishing their empire and they're setting up the Holy Roman Empire. So this is a story about Romanness, And do you want to be involved in that or not? And everybody tells stories about how glorious Rome was. And it's a real practical advantage to setting up your own city state and showing that you really understand uh, these kind of conceptions of power.
0: And you can start keeping records and archives and taxing people more and raising troops more effectively and, and and plugging yourself into military writers who would have written in the classical world, for example. There are practical advantages to plugging yourself into this big conduit of modernity, I guess, Right.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, think about it from the standpoint of Venceslaus, right? Are you going to go with the Christian model and say, oh, and I'm going to be able to have a more standing army. I'm going to be taxing really well. I'll have all of these high level contacts that other rulers have. Or am I going to like keep fighting with the local chieftains, you know, like my mom's family in order to kind of like go back and forth over whose territory is what? You know, it's kind of a no brainer if what you're trying to do is consolidate royal power
0: you listen to Dan Snow's History. We're talking about good King Wenceslas. More coming up. On Gone Medieval from History Hit, we set out to solve the biggest mysteries of the medieval age. So many of these travellers who went out looking for Prester John, what did they think they were hearing? Using science to identify our buried ancestors.
2: Genetic signatures found in present-day Ashkenazi Jewish populations were shared by the genetic ancestries we found in these individuals.
0: And reveal the answers to centuries-old riddles.
1: I stand up straight in a bed, I'm hairy at my base, and I make the ladies cry. The solution is an onion.
0: I'm Matt Lewis, and every Tuesday and Friday you can join me to travel the medieval world in search of the stories you haven't heard and to get under the skins of the ones you have. Gone Medieval from History Hit twice a week, every week. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit – Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
0: Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, His mum's in charge, though. His mum's got a hold of him as regent now, having killed her mother-in-law.
2: Is that right? This is one of the wildest things about the kind of Wenceslaus stories. is there's a rather a lot of murder by members of people's family and it goes unpunished, <laughs> which is interesting. So basically, you know, drahomira manages to get Lyudmila killed and it's like, well, there you go. I mean, I guess she's the regent now or something, but as a kind of result of this, uh, Wenceslaus really resents her. Okay, so he he stays true to his
0: grandma's teaching in a way.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Like, in many ways, what happens is that this just kind of, like, solidifies his Christianness, And And um, he considers that his grandmother has been martyred, which everybody else does as well. Well done. And so it's just kind of turned her into a saint, right? And so he as a result of this, grows up very quickly. Let's put it that way. So his mother is kind of like pulling some of the power behind the reins, but obviously all of the Christians are kind of rooting for Wenceslaus to kind of come to majority earlier because he is representative of all the things that they want.
0: And what kind of age would he have to be before he can throw off his mother? Like Edward III in England, like how he can throw off his mother's influence.
2: Yeah, I mean, it kind of ebbs and it flows around this time, but it's sort of like uh, in the teens is what you're looking at. So he kind of gets hold of the government eventually in we're not exactly sure exactly. Right. Like I think that by the time he's 18, we know that the other Christians, they actually rebel outright against Rahimira. So Jaramira was like really, really trying to say, oh, like, I'm taking us back, everybody. We must return to our pagan ways. And he's getting more and more influence as a teen. But by the time he's 18, that's it. There's an all out rebellion. And she is essentially driven into exile.
0: So Venceslas, it's him. It's his time. He's a man. He's got the support of these kind of Christian, I guess you could say, progressive nobles. So that's it. The future's set.
2: Yeah. And so now that we are saying, okay, here we go, it's Bohemia and it's Christian, what he does, he settles a couple of the other kind of ongoing questions. And he says, you know, actually, we're not going with the old Slavonic, right? We're not going with the kind of um, Byzantine style of Christianity. We are going to align ourselves with the church in Rome. Uh, We're using Latin. That's how it's going to be. And so he's kind of aligning himself here saying, all right, I'm doing things a little bit more like the Western Roman way.
0: And that's, as you point out, because he's a kind of swing vote, right? He's occupying this great, important space in Central Europe. If he'd adopted the Byzantine Church, which we now call the Greek Orthodox Church, that could have been very powerful for the spread of different kinds of Christianity within, well, across the world, but certainly within Europe.
2: Absolutely. You know, in terms of having an outpost that far into Western Europe and one that was this wealthy, that would have done real things, I think, for Byzantium. And also, you know, it would have been a question of taxation certainly for them because if you decide on that polarity you know they could have been taxing that when they're you know losing armies in the holy land right and kind of tapping into that but it's something that they lose here unfortunately for them i suppose if what we're saying is that like you know we want the eastern roman empire to continue forever losing bohemia is a real chink in the armor there
0: okay so yeah could have been a very valuable ally let's get to the christmas carol it's hugely popular is it based on a story at the time
2: yeah, so we get a lot of it out of, uh, there's a particular hagiography or saint's life that is written by Cosmos of Prague. He's a chronicler and he's writing in the 12th century. And according to him... Wenceslas is getting up in the middle of the night and he's wearing just like, you know, a hair shirt and he's getting up and he's going around to every church in Prague in his bare feet with, you know, his one chamberlain and he's going around and giving alms to everybody that he sees. So he's giving the churches lots and lots of money, but secretly and at night. He doesn't want it to be about his own glory. He just wants to help these people. And that kind of enters the record as a definitive truth. And it gets picked up by everyone else uh, kind of around the empire. Because even by this time, you know, he's quite popular. You know, obviously in Bohemia, everyone was like, oh, this guy's definitely a saint. But even down in Italy and things, people are going, oh, yeah, this is really cool. Uh, we like this guy. Because he's kind of a symbol of what newly Christianized peoples could be. So everyone starts saying, yep, one of the big things that he does is he distributes alms at night. And that's when you get this cool story about him trying to help a woodsman who's struggling and then walking out in his bare feet and his bare footsteps fill up with his blood and keep his chamberlain who's following him around on these errands from freezing to death. So it's all very dramatic. It's very goth. We love it. (laughs)
0: Ian, when his successors had these hagiographies commissioned, whilst he was busy giving alms around privately, like all the best Private arms givers—you make sure eventually someone's going to find out about it, right? I mean, that's the. Oh yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, cheapest creepers.
2: So why bring the chamberlain? You know, why is the chamberlain there if not to observe this and tell everybody? Uh, yeah,
0: whatever you do, don't tell anyone that I'm doing all this amazing philanthropy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so he shaped not just Bohemia as a modern state, but he, he also, in terms of the dignity of kingship or of leadership, of he did all that stuff that we expect the most successful medieval rulers to do. Did he?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, and it's really quite interesting because he's very busy modernizing everybody. Right. So he has some rebellions to deal with as a result of this. And these all get added to the hagiography as well. So you will say that he's kind of fighting with some of the other varying Slavs who are around the joint um, who don't want to do this. One very uh, good legends of this is that there's a Duke named Radislaus who um, rebels against him. And he says, you know, rather than us have an all out battle and and risk the lives of all of our subjects. Why don't you and I have just a one-on-one duel? And Radislas at first says, well, you're a big coward for doing this in the first place. Because you should kill all your men. So obviously he's not good like Wenceslas. But then he agrees to the duel. And then as he's going up to the duel, he sees Wenceslas is flanked by two angels who tell him to stand down, and he immediately realizes that he's done the wrong thing and prostrates himself at Wenceslas' feet, and then he's kind of, like, tucked safely into the fold. He accepts Christianity, and then, look, it's another win for Wenceslas. But what's going on at the same time is we have, over in what will become the Holy Roman Empire, the Ottonians are setting up their real claim to fame, and they're looking over, at Bohemia, and they're saying, seems like they've got rather a lot of money and I would like to kind of have them into the fold. These guys need to be holy Romans as well. And this is something that ends up kind of bringing Bohemia even more into the sphere of Western influence because some battles are fought about this, but the Franks are kind of teaming up with the Bavarians. There isn't a whole lot that Ventressas can do and they then get subsumed into imperial authority as a result of it.
0: That's interesting. So the... The Holy Roman Empire, does it like physically conquer Bohemia or do they just kind of get Wenceslas to agree to join that sort of loose and kind of slightly unfamiliar to the modern eye, but that loose confederation?
2: It's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. So basically, there are wars that are fought over it. And there certainly are several battles that the Bohemians don't win particularly convincingly. Ventressas does attempt to kind of team up sometimes with the Magyars and other people to kind of push them back. But it just becomes really clear that they aren't going to go away. Right. And basically he loses uh, key allies. He had been teamed up with the Bavarians, but then the Bavarians team up with the Franks. You know, there's a lot of switching sides. There's a lot of turning heels. So he just kind of sees which way the wind is blowing. And he says, "Okay, well, I guess we're going to have to go along with this, which people aren't particularly happy about because it's a really heavy taxation. But they are really happy about not having to deal with a bunch of Germans stomping through their backyard all the time. Right. And this is also one of the big things that uh, cements his legend as a saintly guy, because then Ventuslaus is called over to, uh, you know, a big meeting with Otto and all of the other Germans to talk about the empire or what have you. And there's a big feast and Ventuslas is late and he's late because he has uh, been in church praying, obviously. So he gets into the Great Hall late and this is a big insult to the emperor. It's a big insult to Otto because he should have been there waiting and attending on him. And uh, the emperor gets up to kind of rebuke him and uh, actually manhandle him a little bit. But again, those angels are there. Can you believe it? These angels that just follow Venceslaus around show him that, oh, he shouldn't be uh, yelling at Venceslaus and actually he's very, very holy. And instead, the emperor has a change of faith and says that he will give Venceslaus any treasures that he wants. And Venceslaus says that I heard you have an arm bone of Saint Vitus and I'd like that. And he uses it to establish the cathedral in Prague. Which is why people are very often confused by Prague Cathedral because it's technically like the St. Vitus and St. Venceslas Cathedral. You know, we got more than one saint in there, is the point. But you know he's holy because he's got angels. When the emperor asks what he wants, he's like, give me relics. I like relics. I just want to do Christian things. And this is helpful to Otto, right? This idea that there's someone under his thumb who's this holy.
0: Yeah, and expanding that eastern frontier out, I guess, right? So we need to think about Venceslas's protecting the independence of his people and the kind of integrity of state, but also joining this kind of transnational organization. Like and he does that successfully. Like is Bohemia able to still be Bohemia whilst also part of this loose union?
2: Yeah, so this is an interesting one because the deal with the Holy Roman Empire is that It is quite loose. You know, people criticize this from a modern standpoint, but I often say that that's its success, you know, where people go, I'm not particularly happy about this auto guy being the emperor right now, but seems pretty check around here. It's not really changing my life for the worse in any way, shape or form. So I can kind of accept it, provided that things are going to kind of rub along more or less as it is. And again, you know, what it does is it kind of establishes a hierarchy, a tax structure. You sort of know how things are going to play out if you're a part of this. And also from the Bohemian standpoint, they're still surrounded by a lot of the Slavic states that haven't Christianized yet. And it makes them look kind of fancy. Well, they're like, well, we're not like those Pomeranians up there in what is now Poland. They haven't even converted yet. You know, we're on the modern team, as it were. But there are people who don't really like it. And notably, one of those guys is the brother of St. Wenceslas, who is Boislav First or Boislav the Cruel. You know, warning bells the minute <laughs> someone's got the Cruel as a nickname. I mean, that's, uh, that's right. And, you know, everyone
0: knows that the minute you get crowned king, sadly you got to get rid of your brothers, every single one of them. It's just, that's not going to work. Tell me what happens to laugh the Cruel, I can guess.
2: Yes, I'm sure that it's a big surprise to you, but he basically is upset that his brother has accumulated all of this power specifically underneath him. And again, it's sort of like your brother ruling everything, kind of new, kind of Christian. From a kind of tribal standpoint, you would still have a lot of power and he feels he has less. So basically uh, he gets his brother killed. So over in Staroboloslav, they are there to celebrate the feast of Saints Cosmas and Damian, who are quite big in the sort of like Eastern calendar. And he gets three of his good mates to basically attack Venceslas as he's coming out of a church, obviously. And they all begin to stab him to death. And he comes up to his brother and does the killing blow and runs him through with a lance. And... This is a very interesting kind of medieval story, because in the first place, you get basically the instant reification of Ventus They're like, bang, he's a saint. Like, that's it. It's a done deal. It's a done deal. But also, everyone's like, well, I guess Boislav's the king now. All right. And like, there's no consideration of like, maybe murdering your brother isn't the way to come to the throne, you know, no one's like, well, we're going to have to imprison Boislav or we're going to have to kill him or anything like that. They're like, nope, he's a Pshami slid. His brother's dead now. This is the king.
0: And Boislav was a bit of a mummy's boy. Like, does he try and undo some of Venceslas's reforms
2: and innovations? Yeah, he's very much seen as like a mummy's boy and kind of like linked more specifically with his mother, because he didn't get sent off to live with his grandma, because everyone was kind of like, oh, there's the spare. We don't care about that guy. And he does kind of try to make things a little bit more, quote unquote, traditional. He isn't Christian, but it's too far gone. Right. It's too far gone at this point in time to walk it back. You can't really say Czechs are not going to stop being Christian at this point because the genies left the bottle.
0: And also, I guess you get into the office on day one, and there are the priests with all the records of like you know the the money coming in and the sophisticated accounting processes, and you're like, mm, maybe don't burn all that stuff just at the moment. Maybe some of that could be useful.
2: He does some things that are kind of popular where you know he does things like say is not going to pay off King Otto over in the Holy Roman Empire. he's like, no." I don't think so. And he tries to kind of like roll the clock back in various ways. But he's kind of also allowed to rule in certain ways because he spends a lot of time attacking the Magyars. And even though Otto is not a big fan of him not paying his taxes, he's a huge fan of a big buffer zone between like the raiding Magyars and everybody else. So he kind of gets away with it. But basically, um, his wife and kids, they Christian up real good and nice And everyone just kind of understands this to be kind of, in many ways, a last gasp of the kind of old timey, old fashioned, pagan, tribal way of doing things. It's just too far gone because the benefits of being this hooked in with the rest of the German states are too undeniable, really.
0: And why is Boislav known as the cruel? Is it just the assassination of his brother or did he have a little proclivity
2: later throughout his reign? It's mostly killing his brother is the answer because actually like weirdly he was kind of an okay duke slash king you know whatever you want to call them there and he says that like you know he feels bad about it you know he ends up feeling so bad about killing his brother that like he gives some of his kids to the church you know and has them become clergymen and things like that in an attempt to not go to hell but you know that's all it really takes is you killing everyone's favorite guy you know yeah you run a successful empire you're great at drawing back the Magyars, but you kill one brother Yep. And that's, you know, the thing you're known for. Henry
0: II as well, you know, kills one guy. Um, okay, so, and I'm really struck by the fact that Venceslas in Czech lands is seen as this kind of Arthurian figure, right? You guys, oh, yeah. i like, counting you in on this. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's there. Is he sleeping? Are you going to blow the horn? He's going to come and rescue everybody. Like, what's, that endures,
2: yeah, we absolutely have this. The same sort of Arthuriana things, they specifically center on St. Ventress last. So there's a couple versions of this legend. But one of them is that underneath one of the mountains, uh, Blanik, there's this rumor that there's kind of like a bunch of sleeping knights. And that um, if Czechs are really threatened in a time of ultimate danger, then uh, Venceslas and them will rise up, and they will take things over. There's a more specific Prague legend that what will happen is that the giant statue of Saint Venceslas will come to life. So um, we have on Václavské náměstí, or Venceslas Square, named after him. We've got a huge equestrian statue of him and the other Czech saints, and it will ride and rise the army, sleeping army from underneath the mountain. People from Prague are more into that one because, you know, we want our <laughs> we want our statue involved or whatever. You know, Moravians are a little less uh, keen on that one. What could I say? But, you know, there is this idea that what it means to be Czech is officially linked to Venceslas more specifically, like to the point when Czechoslovakia, as it was then, was becoming an independent state from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It was almost this 12th century hymn, which is like the St. Venceslas choral that was going to be our national anthem. That's how important this guy is. There isn't really kind of a sense of Czechness without these links to this particular story, because what it means to be Bohemian, what it means to be Czech, as opposed to, you know, some loose conglomerate of pagan Slavs is about how this guy established the Bohemian state.
0: I, I mean, I love the army thing and awakening, but I've got really bad news. I mean, if that army didn't appear <laughs> in 1938, 39, I know 45, I 68, <laughs> like the Czech lands have been through some pretty difficult, let alone the 30 years war, but like, I've got a feeling it's not, they're not coming.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, but if he wasn't going to wake up when the Nazis came in, he's not coming. That's like basically my thing. So it's like I feel like there were rather a lot of Nazis around the joint for quite some time, so I have a hard time believing it. Right.
0: And with that, Eleanor is unable ever to return to her ancestral homeland. Yeah. All <laughs> right. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking about Wenceslas. What an extraordinary story. Thank you very much indeed.
2: An absolute pleasure. Thanks for letting me rant.
0: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History Hit. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month
1: when you use code DAN SNOW at checkout.